policeman. A policeman is a composite of what all men are, I guess, a mingling of saint and sinner, dust and deity. Called statistics, wave the fan over stinkers, underscore instances of dishonesty and brutality because they are news. What that really means is that they are exceptional. They are unusual. They are not commonplace. Buried under the froth is the fact. And the fact is that less than one-half of one percent of policemen misfit that uniform. And that is a better average than you'd find among clergymen. What is a policeman? He of all men is at once the most needed and the most wanted, a strangely nameless creature who is sir to his face and pig or worse behind his back. He must be such a diplomat that he can settle differences between individuals so that each will think he won, but if a policeman is neat, he's conceited. If he's careless, he's a bum. If he's pleasant, he's a flirt. If he's not, he's a grouch. He must make instant decisions which would require months for a lawyer, but if he hurries, he's careless. If he's deliberate, he's lazy. He must be first to an accident, infallible with a diagnosis. He must be able to start breathing, stop bleeding, tie splints, and above all, be sure the victim goes home without a limp or expect to be sued. The police officer must know every gun, draw on the run, and hit where it doesn't hurt. He must be able to whip two men twice his size and half his age without damaging his uniform and without being brutal. If you hit him, he's a coward. If he hits you, he's a bully. A policeman must know everything and not tell. He must know where all of the sin is and not partake. The policeman from a single human hair must be able to describe the crime, the weapon, the criminal, and tell you where the criminal is hiding, but if he catches the criminal, he's lucky. If he doesn't, he's a dunce. If he gets promoted, he has political pull. If he doesn't, he's a dullard. The policeman must chase bum leads to a dead end, stake out ten nights to tag one witness who saw it happen but refuses to remember. He runs files and writes reports until his eyes ache to build a case against some felon who will get dealed out by a shameless Seamus or an honorable who isn't honorable. The policeman must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And, of course, he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. Hello, and welcome to the Roll Call Room podcast podcast that triggered an entire police department and forced an asshole chief of police to resign. And now, here's your hosts, Lauren, my Uncle Mike, and my dad, and best-selling author, Nick. Fuck you, Commanders. You're next. Chapter 1 Suicide 
May 25th, 2019. A day that will always be ingrained in my mind. I remember that day like it was yesterday, and no other day has been the same since. That was the day that I chose to take my own life. Many factors led to this decision. Many failures led to this decision. And even as I planned it, second thoughts were starting to overpower this decision. Now, as you're reading this, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, Nig must have been going through some really tough personal things for him to get to that point. Well, you're partially correct. Ultimately, it was my career in law enforcement and enduring poor leadership over a long period of time that drove me to that point. That doesn't mean that I don't take full responsibility for making that final decision, but it is important for you to know all of the factors that led to that decision. I want you to know that if you ever get to that point of desperation and hopelessness, you are not alone, like I thought I was. So how do we get to this point? Many of you don't know me, so let me paint you a picture of the type of person that I am. When you're in a social setting and you look around and there's that one person that's making everyone laugh, that would be me. No, I didn't have a fucked up childhood. Actually, quite the opposite. On the job, I considered myself to be one of the most level-headed officers. When I got promoted to sergeant, I considered myself a good leader. And we will get to what a good leader is later on in the book. But I always considered myself someone that led from the front, someone that stuck up for their people, and someone that always cared about their subordinates' mental health. I can remember a time as a sergeant sitting in my office with an officer who was struggling with his mental health. This officer had just gone through a terrible divorce and was in financial ruin. I remember listening to him and seeing how close to the edge he was. With every word, I could hear the pain he was in. At that time, I did not fully understand what he was going through, but I liked to think that I did. In my head, I was saying to myself, this guy has the whole world ahead of him and he's willing to just give it up. Fast forward to May 25th, 2019. I then fully understood that I had no idea what he was going through. You see, you have to understand, when you get to that mindset of believing that suicide is the only option, it's a thought process that only people in this club know about. All that remains is the dark cloud of pain, suffering, bad decisions, poor leaders, the times you wish you said what you were really thinking and not just what made other people feel good. The last thing you're thinking of is what destruction this will cause for the people left behind. It's a certain tunnel vision unlike any other. Nothing else matters to you at that moment other than wanting the pain to end. In order for you to understand my thought process and how I got to May 25th, 2019, I need to tell you the backstory. I started in a police department in Virginia with roughly 300 officers. I went to a regional police academy and spent 20 weeks preparing to become a police officer, the profession that I always dreamed of. Even in the academy, I always cheered up my classmates and helped them see the lighter side of police work. When I graduated from the academy, I went into field training. I struggled, like most recruits do, trying to adjust to civilian life. 
The change is pretty tough if you are a kind-hearted person and you believe that everybody is good and everybody is honest with you. You learn fairly quickly in law enforcement that being lied to was just part of the job. You learn that it's not personal, and people genuinely aren't doing it to be assholes most of the time. It's a normal human reaction to be deceptive towards authority. Early in my career, I decided that I wanted to be in community policing. Community policing appealed to me because I liked working with the public, and I loved adding currency to the police social bank. It's not a highly admired job within the profession. Most officers would make fun of the community policing unit mostly because they didn't understand how it benefited them. Eventually, after three attempts to get into the community policing unit, I was accepted. Almost immediately, I took to the unit like a fish to water. I always used out-of-the-box thinking to develop new programs within my agency, and it helped elevate us to a national level. When this happened, it was my first experience within the profession of facing jealousy and poor leadership. I learned very quickly that the brotherhood we hold so near and dear in our profession only extends so far. I watched colleagues get jealous over national recognition for our outstanding community policing program, and the more popular these programs became, the so-called leaders attempted to use them as positional equity. We'll talk about that positional equity later on in this book, but more and more in our profession, it is becoming the new norm. As I continued to excel in the community policing program, my career path took a turn. A sergeant and a good friend of mine told me that I should consider putting in for sergeant. He said I was a natural-born leader in our department, and they needed someone like me in the ranks. I took the sergeant's process and scored top of the list. I was one of the first promoted off of that list and immediately sent to Midnight's. On Midnight's, I supervised the newest officers, officers fresh off field training, and some officers with performance issues. This taught me how to communicate better with people. I always tried to find the best way to teach them first without crushing them with internal investigations, which at the time was the only way to handle underperforming officers. As I sat on midnights as a brand new sergeant on probation for one year, I watched as sergeants promoted over me were selected for specialized units without completing any time in patrol. This is a common practice with poor leaders, and we call it the hookup. That's when you're friends with the commander above you, and they single you out and give you things that you neither deserved or earned, while others below you are just trying to get crumbs of the pie. The frustrating part is, as you're working overnight hours, fighting to get four hours of sleep, and dealing with the worst of the worst, your peers are given special treatment because they know the right people. In our profession, there are two choices. Suck it up and deal with it, or be vocal, get blacklisted, and never move anywhere in the agency. For the longest time, I chose to suck it up and deal with it. One thing I have learned when dealing with poor leaders is that they never want to hear that they are wrong. In fact, in my entire law enforcement career, I have never had a commander or leader pull me into their office and say, Nick, what do you or your people need? How can I do better? It's way easier to pretend you're a good leader and everyone is behind you 
because they believe in you rather than the real reason, that they are behind you because they fear you. For three years, I was on patrol, moving around wherever the department needed me. I did this at the sacrifice of my family. If the commander came to me and asked me to move my shift and supervise a group that was struggling, without hesitation, my answer was always yes. I never consulted my family, I never called them, I never so much as looked in a calendar to see if the schedule change would affect them. And I did this for the department and the mission. Eventually, I got a call from a deputy chief three years into being a sergeant. He told me I was going back to the community policing unit as the sergeant. At the time, the community policing unit had cycled through so many sergeants that the mission was a mess. The unit was being run as three separate units, and there was no cohesiveness and no teamwork. The first order of business was to hand-select officers for this unit and get the community policing unit back to the way it was when I was there. Sounds easy, but with type A personalities, this is a very difficult task. Remarkably, I achieved it within months. While this was happening, our street crimes unit had dissolved, and the community policing unit was held to task by the chief of police to pick up enforcement of narcotics and gun interdiction. My question was, how can the community policing unit go out and arrest the very community members that it's supposed to build a partnership with? Well, it wasn't easy, but we did it. My unit of 12 officers averaged 20 to 30 arrests a week, and we were getting narcotics and guns off the street. Anytime you allowed hard-charging officers to do their jobs and not micromanage them, morale is going to be very high. Ferguson. Everyone in law enforcement hears Ferguson. And it reminds them of the defining moment in history when our profession changed. I remember seeing on the news what was going on in Ferguson, but I never thought it would affect us here in Virginia. Within weeks of Ferguson happening, I was summoned up to the chief's office. The chief almost immediately asked me, if Ferguson happened right now in our city, would you be able to stop it? I remember looking at him and thinking to myself, Chief, nobody can stop what's happening in Ferguson. That's naive for you to believe that one single person can change the course of what was happening. I remember trying to explain to him that our community connections were extremely strong. I explained we had strong ties to community leaders and community activists if something like this ever happened in the city. He then gave me an order to no longer allow the community policing unit to do street-level enforcement. He wanted the community policing unit to strictly embed themselves in the neighborhoods and gain the trust of the public by any means necessary. Anyone that knows anything about police work in the inner city knows that a good portion of these folks who have nothing need something to buy into. What does that mean? It means that if my officers go into the inner city and want to gain trust, they have to give something in return something tangible. That means that my officers needed items to give away for free. They needed to play sports with the kids within the community, etc. I asked the chief what type of operating budget I would have for this mission. And he looked at me and said, get creative. I knew when I left the chief's office that I was going to have to have a meeting with my team 
and try to sell them this shitburger sandwich. I didn't agree with the new mission, but it was my responsibility to put on a happy face in front of my team and lead by example. When the time came to sit down with my team to break the news to them, a lot of them were disappointed, understandably. But just like I expected, the team that I had assembled had the highest professionalism and the greatest work ethic, and they excelled with the new mission. Around the same time, one of my officers came into my office and said that she was not feeling well. The physical pain that she was describing gave me chills, and I immediately gave her the leave that she needed to go check it out. Within hours of her leaving my office, my cell phone rang, and it was her. When I picked up the phone, I could hear her crying on the other end. She told me that she was diagnosed with cancer, and she would begin treatment immediately. I knew she had no family down here in Virginia, and as a good leader, I assumed the role of taking care of her. For months during her treatment, I was her shield from the department. There were several commanders within the agency that were unsympathetic to her and refused to give her the leave that she needed to get treatment, but I kept that information from her. Luckily for me, I had a great supervisor who allowed me to focus on her. After almost a year of treatment, she was given a new diagnosis. She was terminal. Even while dealing with her sickness, all I could think about was my team. How would I tell them? How are they going to take it? How do we get them to help after? How do we honor her at the end? None of the thoughts were ever about myself or my own mental health. I remember the night before she passed away like it was yesterday. She was fighting and prolonging the inevitable, mostly because she was a warrior. All the way until the end, she thought she was going to beat cancer. I remember sitting next to her and holding her hand, convincing her to let go. To this day, that still hurts my heart. And to convince her that the best thing for her was to die, and not to worry about all of us, because we would be able to heal. I just wanted her pain to end. I truly believe that was the beginning of my mental health downfall. When she passed, I watched the people in our department treat her like she wasn't even a member of the agency. I sat in meetings about her funeral and heard commanders speak of her like she only worked there for two days. One commander in particular said, Why are we giving her this type of funeral when she didn't die in the line of duty? This broke my heart. You'll hear a lot about leaders and managers in this book, and that is one of those moments where you are neither. You're just an asshole. At her funeral, another commander, newly promoted to deputy chief, pulled me aside and said that he looked at the agenda for the funeral, and one hour was way too long for a funeral. Again, my commitment was to her and my unit, which was in shambles after her death. I honored his wishes, and we cut the ceremony in half, cutting her honor in half. I never spoke of her funeral or her death after that. For years, any time I thought of her or her funeral, I would immediately switch my train of thought. I would not go to visit her at the cemetery. I would not look at pictures of her, and it was pretty common in our unit not to speak of her. As a police officer, we do a lousy job of self-care. Fast forward a year, 
I was assigned yet another commander. This would be the 17th. This commander had no experience in community policing, and within the department was known to have mental issues. This commander was sent to my unit as a last chance before being terminated for performance issues. I never, in my law enforcement career, subscribed to rumors or assumptions about people without working with them first. Almost immediately, I knew that this commander was going to be a problem. Her style and supervision was erratic, controlling, and not inclusive. There were moments speaking to her in her office where I detected sharp racism and sexism. I made sure to document every conversation with her because I had a feeling in the future this would be needed, and unfortunately I was right. Eventually, being supervised by her began to take its mental toll. I remember one instance in particular. I was sitting in my office, and I had a dry erase board to the right of me, and she came into my office. She looked at the dry erase board and said, Why is the dry erase board to the right of you instead of in front of you where you can see it? I replied, It was there when I moved into the office, and it takes facilities a month to move anything in an office. Her response to me was to move the dry erase board in front of me so that I could see it every single day. I didn't argue. I moved it myself. The very next day she came into my office and asked why the dry erase board was moved. As I spoke to her about our conversation the day prior, she looked at me like I was nuts and that the conversation never occurred. This type of psychotic behavior went on for eight months. One morning before heading into work, I was preparing my lunch like I normally do, and I started to feel something I've never felt before. I felt a shortness of breath and a tightness in my chest. I felt dizzy and nauseous and had to use the countertop from falling on the floor. I honestly believed that I was having a heart attack, and I was scared out of my mind. I remember laying on the kitchen floor and thinking about all the things I haven't done yet that I wanted to before dying. I was rushed to the hospital, and luckily diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. I went into work the next day and went into my captain's office with my fellow sergeant and we filed a hostile work environment claim. Our captain, although a very nice person, was a coward and immediately began to downplay the situation. I honestly believed that this time the department would handle things accordingly, but later I was proven wrong. The complaint went to a spineless chief who then passed the complaint to the city's human resource department. At the time, we were told it was best handled by them, because they handled these types of cases all the time. Later, we found out that the chief only assigned the case to the city human resource department because he was afraid of getting sued by the lieutenant named in the complaint. While the investigation was going on, this lieutenant was given instructions to stay away from both me and my partner which she did not follow. Numerous complaints were made and subsequently ignored about her not following the stay-away order. This resulted in even more anxiety, deep depression, and ultimately, no desire to come to work. When I would come to work, I would go to my office and lock my door and barricade it. I was constantly in fear of what she was going to do next. This went on for eight months, and I had had enough. 
I asked numerous times what the status of the investigation was and was brushed off by my captain and my chief, as if they didn't care, because they didn't. Ultimately, I started looking for a new job. I ended up taking the first job that came my way, even though I had no desire to do the job. I just needed to get away. I accepted a job in the Washington, D.C. Police Department and gave my two-week resignation with my department. This resignation went through the department like a shockwave, because if I was leaving, and I was considered one of the happiest people in the department, what was going on? What people didn't know was the horror, bullying, and hostile work environment I had been enduring. Anytime you leave a job, typically you have an exit interview, and mine was with the chief of police. These exit interviews are typically a way for you to tell the leadership what's wrong, what's right, and how to improve the agency. Almost immediately, my chief brought up a social media post that I made, calling the department disorganized and chaotic. I found that odd, because what does my social media post have anything to do with my exit? And more importantly, is it just because I said it, or because it's true? Ultimately, it was because what I said was true, and he did not like that. The chief had no desire in my exit interview to try and retain me. In fact, the exit interview was quite hostile, and it was clear that he was happy to see me go. When I brought up the hostile work environment claim, he brushed it off. The chief and I had some rather choice words for each other, and I left his office feeling more like I got fired than I resigned. This was a chief that I looked up to, that had national recognition prior to coming to our agency, and his true colors shined in that exit interview. I remember going to my car after the exit interview and sobbing. I wasn't sobbing for the way that the chief spoke to me. I was sobbing because I felt like I was going through a breakup. We sacrifice so much for our agencies, and at that moment, in his office, I thought of all the missed birthdays, holidays, family events, etc. Not to mention the toll it had taken on my mental health, which was all for nothing. There were countless times that I spent money out of my own pocket for community events to make the department look like we were engaging with the community. The list of selfless sacrifices goes on. Even now, thinking about it upsets me because no one should feel that way when leaving an agency. When I started my new job, almost immediately, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. The things I saw and the things that I was ordered to do were so unethical and went against everything that I believed in as a law enforcement officer. At the same time, I was struggling with missing my coworkers, my friends, and the day-to-day -day job that I used to have. We get conditioned that it's the only thing that we can do to make us happy. On the fifth day at my new job, I sucked up my pride and I called my old chief. I remember when he picked up the phone. I could hear that he was not happy to hear from me. I jumped on the sword and admitted that I was wrong, even when I wasn't, and asked for my job back. The chief, surprisingly, agreed to take me back and to take me back at my rank of sergeant. He gave me instructions to contact his human resource manager, 
and it got me back in the department within weeks. Mind you, I had only been out of the department for five days. I immediately contacted the human resources manager who assured me that because it was a rehire, I'd be back within two to three weeks. I gave my notice to the D.C. Police Department at the advice of my former chief. Once I gave my notice, my prior department made me go through the entire hiring process all over again. This took two months. During those two months, I had no income and mounds of debt building. Finally, after two and a half months, I was called to police headquarters to sign my offer letter. When I got there, the human resources manager slid the offer letter to me and said, This is the offer the chief would like to make you. I read the offer letter, and I was crushed. I was deceived. And most of all, it was done out of spite. I looked at the offer letter, and they had stripped my rank from me and reduced my pay by $10,000. I was stuck, because while I was waiting to come back, I had not applied to any other agencies and needed the job. I signed the offer letter and sunk into a very deep depression. It got worse, as the human resources manager explained to me that I would be on probation for a year and not eligible for any specialized units, including promotions. Furthermore, they explained to me that if at any time I attempted to exercise my supervisory skills to undermine any current supervisors, that I would not make it off of probation. She explained that my job was now as a patrol officer, and I would need to be field trained all over again, despite being on the job for nearly 15 years. I remembered just before I left the conference room, she said something to me that I still remember to this day. She asked if I was uncomfortable working amongst people that I once supervised. This made me chuckle, and I explained to her that I never led like a dictator. I led like a leader, and I wasn't afraid to work with people that I used to supervise because I always treated my people good. April 29th, 2019, my first day back on the job. I was sitting in roll call early and received the text from my captain to come to her office. As I walked down the hallway, I thought to myself, maybe she's going to give me some words of encouragement. Maybe she will offer some understanding about how difficult this was to be going from a sergeant to an officer and being field trained by somebody with less time on that I had owned my boots. But I was wrong. When I walked into her office, I saw my sergeant, lieutenant, and her, and was instructed to close the door. My captain, who was also the former lead of the critical incident scene management team, began to berate me. She told me that everything that was happening to me was my own fault, and that if she ever hears that I was speaking ill of the department or the chief, that I wouldn't make it off probation, which I found funny because... When she was my captain and I was a sergeant, all I heard her do was criticize our chief. I left her office deflated and thinking I made a horrible decision coming back. For two weeks, I sat in a cruiser with a field trainer that had two years on the job, trying to teach me how to do a job that I had done for almost 20 years. I learned from her that prior to being pulled into the captain's office, she was pulled in the office and told to report back anything that I said about the department. On my last day of field training, I was told the next shift I'd be on my own, 
then I was clear for solo patrol. The next day I came in, I set up my cruiser for solo patrol, and headed to roll call, when one of the sergeants stopped me and told me that I was not clear for solo patrol until the chief personally signed off on my memorandum. In all of my time in that agency, I had never seen the chief personally sign off on a memorandum for solo patrol, but I kept my mouth shut, and I kept on moving. I hoped that this type of retaliation would stop, but I was wrong. As time went on, it was very obvious to me that leaving the department showed I had no loyalty to certain people within the department. Friends who I thought were friends were now enemies, and enemies were now worse enemies because I was no longer a supervisor and protected under management. My work performance was constantly monitored. Every time my captain had the opportunity to scrutinize something that I did, she took full advantage of it. I noticed that when I would complete a police report, it would be immediately reviewed by her, and then my sergeant would come to me and criticize my report. I later discovered that the reason for my return taking two months was to prevent me from putting in for the new sergeant process. It was very apparent that I was no longer welcome at this department but I was stuck, and I had no other lines in the water. And in my mind, this department was the best that I could do. May 24th, 2019. I remember this day because it was my planning day. If you've ever spoken to anybody that has attempted suicide, they will tell you that they had a planning day, and this was mine. I knew I didn't want my family home when I did it, and I knew that I needed to get my affairs in order. I always took care of the financials in my household, so I needed to make sure that my family was taken care of. During my planning stage, I was also doing my convincing. Let me tell you what the convincing is. The convincing is where you talk yourself into it, not out of it. It is almost like the decision has already been made and you are just reinforcing your decision. Looking back now, the convincing had everything to do with the department and nothing to do with my family, which is fucked up if you think about it. I've been on countless suicide scenes and I would always stand there and think to myself, what drove this person to do something like this? How selfish can you be? I can tell you from experience that it's not selfishness at play at all. It's one of the most difficult things that you'll convince yourself to do. In your mind, you are convinced that the world will be better off without you. Your family, your agency, your community, everyone. May 24th, 2019 was a day of meticulous planning. And I'm really good at planning. I knew where I was going to do it, how I was going to do it, and I even wanted to control what happened after I did. I can remember sitting there and writing letters to my family as though I was away at summer camp and I'd be back. But in reality, I was already gone a long time ago. My agency had sucked the life out of me. Everything that I was before it was gone. And it was almost like committing suicide was my ultimate way of telling the department Go fuck yourself. May 25th, 2019. 
I remember sending my family out of the house. I had decided to use the gun that I purchased when I left the department the first time. I went upstairs to the bedroom, laid out my letters, and laid out plastic on the bed. I went in my safe, retrieved my Glock 23, and laid it on the bed next to me. I remember grabbing it and holding it and thinking to myself that it was so much heavier than I remembered. I've shot that gun thousands of times, and that one time I picked it up, it felt like a cinder block. I still remember sitting there and thinking to myself of all the scenes that have gone on to involving suicides and which ones were the least traumatic to first responders. Even during my final act, I didn't want to traumatize my family and the first responders who would later discover my body. I remember grabbing my gun and looking at the sight of it and just reading over and over what it said. I even turned it and looked down the barrel. Something as a law enforcement officer you're told a million times never to do. I looked down and I can see my lethal bullet ready and I remember hearing a male's voice telling me, Stop. It's not time. You've got more to live for. Don't do it. At that moment, I stopped. I put the gun down. A few moments later, my wife had called, and I broke down and cried and asked for help. We immediately called for help, and I received the best care. After a suicide attempt comes the real work. Your days are filled with a void. That void of constantly thinking about doing it now needs to be filled with something else. Being the fixer, I also needed to make sure that nobody went through what I went through. How can I reach people struggling just like me? The answer came to me months later. A calling. The Roll Call Room podcast was supposed to be a podcast that just helped a few, but later grew into something that started a revolution within our profession. Ultimately, it cost me my career, but this time the message was too important to give up. I survived for a reason, and it was now my responsibility to make sure that no one has a May 25th, 2019. Law enforcement suicides are at an all-time high right now. One of the causes is poor leadership within the law enforcement profession. Nick, the host of the Roll Call Room podcast, has written a book, Police Mental Barricade, A Survivor's Guide to Poor Law Enforcement Leadership. This book is a raw and powerful look into suicide and how poor leadership decisions contribute to law enforcement suicides. Buy the book now at mentalhealthbarricade.com and stop the stigma. Gee, I am very tired. How tired are you? Very tired. I've been working a lot of overtime and it is making me very tired. You, my friend, need some sleep. No, I will sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> what I need is a good cup of freshly roasted gourmet coffee. 
Freshly roasted gourmet coffee, you say? Yes. Do you know where I could get a cup of freshly roasted gourmet coffee? I do. Where? The Roll Call Room Cafe. The Roll Call Room Cafe? The Roll Call Room Cafe. It's located at 17229 Wayside Drive in Dumfries, Virginia. The Roll Call Room Cafe uses only the finest premium gourmet beans and unlike national chains, the Roll Call Room Cafe imports, roasts, grinds, and packages their coffee on site. Sounds delicious, Roland. It is. But Roland, I'm in Nebraska. No problem there. You can order their coffee online at www.rollcallroomcafe.com. Rollcallroomcafe.com? Rollcallroomcafe.com. 